morning. My mic's on here. I can hear. You hear. Just something there. A little something. Drive it up. Down. Down. Better? More gooder? Most bestest? Three things I'd like to say before I get into the message. Four things. Thank you for inviting me. Um, I've found in this past month or so in traveling various conferences, it's what we knew already. It's a great time of encouragement for the people of God to get together around spiritual things, perhaps even more so since it's been a long time for many people they haven't been able to get together or haven't for a variety of reasons during this past year. So uh, good timing in that sense to come together for a time of focus on spiritual things. Second thing, um, I have often said that if I say anything that isn't accurate, uh, love me enough to come up and tell me. Don't let me continue on in my ignorance. Uh, so uh, someone did approach me yesterday. It may seem like a fairly minor point, but I don't like to be inaccurate in anything when it comes to the Word of God. It has to do with a semi-technical detail, which I was very encouraged that they knew the correct uh, answer. Uh, so it had to do with the uh, four kings that came up, or the four empires that came up after Alexander. And I mentioned that, that was, the kingdoms were divided into four family members, which was not accurate. They were actually divided into four of his generals. The intrigue then began with the families of those generals, which is a whole other story. But thank you for pointing that out for me. Third, uh, I did say something at the end of the meeting yesterday about the wearing of masks, and I made a statement to the effect that it's driven much by the fear of death. I still think that that is true, but I want to clarify that I did not mean to indicate by that that if you have either conscience or sensitivity about wearing the mask, that I was in any way impugning anyone's motive or or spirituality or anything like that. We have had uh, opportunity during this pandemic in our own assembly to practice well, what we kind of should be practicing all along, but particularly along the lines of Romans 14. Recognize that people have conscience about different things. And we are called upon and joined by the scripture not to condemn our brothers or sisters for their conscience about certain matters, but rather to uh, recognize that one might have conscience in this and one in another. And so we have not, I'm just speaking, I hope that nobody took it that I was in any way indicating that if you wore a mask, it was some kind of uh, flaw in your character or in your spirituality. That's not the point I was making, other than simply to say that in many ways, the fear of death is a very real thing. The difference, of course, for us is it isn't that you and I as a believer have uh, n no fear of what happens after we die. It's the process, isn't it? <laughs> It's like the old spiritual quip used to say, 
uh, everybody's talking about heaven, but nobody wants to die to get there. And uh, God God has built in us a determination uh, to live and to preserve life. And so that's a very natural thing. Uh, I remember years ago, a man said, told me when he first got saved, he didn't understand it because he heard all these t- people talking about how wonderful heaven is, and if you died, you went to be with the Lord. And then they spent all these amounts of money on hospitals and doctors trying not to die, you know. And so he had to come to reconcile that in his own understanding, as we all do. But that's a very natural thing, isn't it? God uh, expects us and has made us really in that way. I'll, I'll tell you one quick story before I get to the fourth thing. This will be part of the third thing. Um, My mother got saved one month before she died. And that's a story in itself, which I won't take time now to go into the details. Two weeks after she got saved, she was placed in hospice care. And over the years, as I traveled, my mother was not saved. And I used to always be somewhere around the world, wherever, and often get a call. She's in the hospital. Her health is bad, and so on. You know, and it was one of my little just requests for the Lord, if possible, Lord, I'd like for my mother not to be alone when she dies. And as it turned out, not unlike the weather today, but a little bit more intense, we had a tropical storm, and I found myself at the hospice place where my mother was, They weren't moving anybody because of the tropical storm, 75,000 people without power in Jacksonville, Florida. The place had a generator, and so the hospice center where she was allowed me to move a bed right into the room, which I'd done before in those couple of weeks, stayed by her. And uh, the point of what I'm saying is that when you're under hospice care, you you are made aware that they are not there to preserve life. Palliative care is to comfort them as they're leaving this world. And they're not going to take, you've already signed. I'll never forget when the doctor asked me, and I just pass this on to you folks out here too as a word of advice for me, take it for what it's worth, that when I had to put my hand to the pen to sign the, the do not resuscitate order for my mother, I almost couldn't put my hand to the paper. And I don't know that I would have if she hadn't have gotten saved. But I thought to myself at that time, Lord, I don't feel like it's something I as a child should have to do for my parent. So we've taken care of that so our children don't have to face that decision. I mean, it was a tough, tough decision, you know. To tell them, don't try to preserve my mother's life. And I thought, I don't want my children to have to face that. So my wife and I are taking care of it. But anyway, having been involved in, you know, visiting folks as a, as a Christian, as a preacher and teacher of the Word of God, I've had the experience numerous times of being by the bedside of someone when they left this world. I was standing by my mother's bed on that Sunday morning, and I heard what happened with her breath, and I knew this is it. And I cried out, help, somebody help me. Because everything within me wanted to stop her from dying. The nurse ran in and 
They're not there to stop her from dying. They didn't stop her from dying. My mother breathed her last breath while I was standing there holding her hand. Now, I'll just tell you one more aspect of the story that was interesting just to show you how the Lord works sometimes. On that particular Sunday, in the little assembly I'd been raised as a saved man in, in Jacksonville, Florida, where my mother-in-law still attends to this day, uh, Henry Sardinia was speaking that Sunday in Jacksonville. And so when the meeting was over, my mother-in-law and father-in-law, who was alive at that time, called and said, why don't we come by the hospice center and uh, we'll stay with your mom and you and Henry, you know, go have lunch and then, you know, come back. I said, I'll tell you what, instead of doing that, why don't you all go have lunch first and then come after that? Well, it was in that interim of time, had I been gone, mother passed. But at the exact moment when I cried out, help, she's going, the door opened at that moment. And in walked Henry and Lisa two of his daughters, at that precise moment. The Lord sent help for me during that time. The nurse came in, and Henry got beside the bed, and I couldn't pray, I couldn't do anything, you know, I was just broke up, and Henry began to pray in his unique way. <laughs> Wax eloquent, you know. Oh, Lord, Incredible as we think, you know, the wonder of it that here we are and it's being taped. <laughs> okay, so, yeah. You know, and, and like the timing, Lord, it was like Saul on the mountain and Samuel and the sacrifice and the absolute perfect timing. And we walk in the door and all that, you know. And anyway, <laughs> some of y'all must know him. <laughs> so when he was done, I looked at him, I said, Henry. None of that had anything to do with it. What do you mean? I said, that door opened. My mother took one look at you and said, if this is all there is, I'm going to glory. <laughs> True story. <laughs> so, anyway, so the fear of death, <laughs> it's a real thing. Now, the third, fourth thing I want to say, and then we're actually going to get to the message in the Word of God, is that... Um, that last song was a great song, great message in that song. There's only one thing that was left out of that song. And it's an important thing, and it's very relevant to the message of Daniel and some of the things we've been talking about. I know you can't put everything in a song and every verse of everything, but it is a very important thing. Because they did overcome him by the blood of the Lamb. And they overcame him, this is Satan himself, by the word of their testimony. But there was one other critical component in Revelation 12. They loved not their lives unto death. They were willing, if it cost them, to give up their lives. And I think even Greg uh, intimated at it a little bit there when he was praying or speaking to us at the close of the song and talking to the Lord, that the Lord did overcome, didn't he? But he didn't overcome by escaping death. He overcame by the very means of the death that he died. And the writer to the Hebrews will remind us in chapter 2 that he is crowned with glory and honor 
because of the very death that he died. In other words, the very death that he died is the cause of his great crowning with glory and honor. And so sometimes we overcome and we don't have to die. But part of that whole overcoming thing may involve you're going to have to face the fact that you love not your life even unto death if that's what it takes. We don't know what's coming down the pike, do we? But as we've seen from the book of Daniel, he had to be reminded multiple times of what his people were going to face before ultimately the end. So with that in mind, let's turn to Daniel chapter 10. And we will seek to progress through Daniel chapter 10, 11, and 12. Don't worry. It's going to be easier than you think. <laughs> I hope. Daniel chapter 10. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a thing was revealed unto Daniel whose name was called Belteshazzar. And the thing was true, but the time appointed was long. And he understood the thing, and he had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant bread, neither came flesh nor wine in my mouth, neither did I anoint myself at all, till three whole weeks were fulfilled. And in the four and twentieth day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, which is Hiddekel, which is Tigris River. Then I lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose loins were girded with fine gold of Uphaz. His body also was like the barrel, and his face as the appearance of lightning, and his eyes as lamps of fire, and his arms and his feet like in color to polished brass, and the voice of his words like the voice of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men that were with me saw not the vision, but a great quaking fell upon them, so that they fled to hide themselves. Therefore I was left alone and saw this great vision, and there remained no strength in me, for my comeliness was turned in me into corruption, and I retained no strength. Yet heard I the voice of his words, and when I heard the voice of his words, then was I in a deep sleep on my face, and my face toward the ground. Now, let me just pause here to say, interpretively, when you move through chapter 10, there are the appearances of heavenly and divine beings, I may say, and you'll have to uh, ascertain or discern where one leaves off and another begins. It's not uh, an easy thing to do, but what I believe happens now is we move from the vision of of this first man to now the financial uh, move back again. So I just want to make you aware that if you don't have record, it moves back and forth between different beings. And behold, a hand touched me, which set me upon my knees and upon the palms of my hands. Now, whether you take that as being the first part of the vision of the, the quote, man that he saw, a certain man, or whether you take it as being the angelic being uh, from 
here down to about verse 15. It was a remarkable thing, wasn't it, that in his vision, this heavenly being touched him. And so one of the things that we've seen throughout the book of Daniel, particularly it seems to me in this last half of the book, chapters uh, 7, 6 through 12, is the interaction between earth and heaven, and the interaction between a man on earth and heaven. Now, understandably, it was a different time and age. I get that. And still, it's remarkable again, this interaction that you find. It's remarkable, too, when you think that Daniel was a man in captivity. I often call him a POW in Iraq, in exile, which is really what he was in that day. And yet in that land of captivity, there because his people were being disciplined for their failure to observe the things that God had told them to observe time and time and time again, in that land of captivity, God still spoke to him and communicated him to him truth that would be, as James reminded us, not only for Daniel's time, but here we are looking at his book and talking about things that are even yet to come, communicated to Daniel. And he said unto me in verse 11, O man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak unto thee, and stand upright, for unto thee am I now sent. And when he had spoken this word unto me, I stood trembling. Then said he unto me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that thou didst set thine heart to understand and to chasten thyself before thy God, thy words were heard, and I am come for thy words." But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days. Now, if you remember at the very outset of this chapter, Daniel was praying for 21 days. During the 21 days that Daniel was praying, there is this battle that is taking place between principalities and powers, spiritual wickedness, as we're told in Ephesians, in high places or in heavenly places. I can't begin to imagine what kind of battle it is or was that takes place like that. But I do wonder, had Daniel stopped praying at day 20 or at day 19? I'm not sure. It's just speculative to think of what might have happened. But for the 21 days that Daniel prayed, 21 days, there was this battle. And the naming of the Another angelic being here, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. And now I'm come to make thee understand what shall befall thy people in the latter days, for yet the vision is for many days. And then we find another similar situation happening. Verse 16, Behold, one like the similitude of the sons of men touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spake, said to him that stood before me, O my Lord, by the vision of my sorrows, by, by the vision my sorrows are turned upon me, and I have retained no strength. For how can the servant of this my Lord talk with this my Lord? For as for me, straightway there remained no strength in me, neither is there breath left in me. Then there came again and touched me one like the appearance of a man, and he strengthened me and said, O man greatly beloved. And when he had spoken unto me, I was strengthened. And then he ultimately says in verse 21, I will show thee that which is noted in the scripture of truth. 
And there is none that hideth with me, holdeth with me in these things, but Michael your prince. Also in the first year of Darius the Mede, even I stood to confirm and to strengthen him. And now I will show thee the truth. And he begins to describe to him what will take place in the coming days ahead and in the kingdoms uh, ahead. Now, I want to stop at this point because my approach is going to be just a little bit different than a um, straightforward approach from chapter 10. And what I'd like to do is begin, first of all, in chapter 11 and uh, deal with chapter 11 and then move back to 10 and on to 12. And I'll tell you the reason why I'm doing that. Uh, Daniel chapter 11, it's not so much that it's complex, it is lengthy, um, and it is very detailed, and it would take more time than I have today to go through the explanation of all that is told in Daniel chapter 11 and how it came to pass historically. Critics of the Word of God generally attack the Word of God on a couple of fronts, three in particular. One, critics of the Word of God do not believe in predictive prophecy, that God reveals things that are going to happen before they happen. And so they come up with all sorts of involved, you know, schemes about how this had to have been written uh, in the second century and by the Jews then and on and on and on it goes. I won't bore you with some of the things that they say could happen. That is their first, well, not their first, it is one of their assaults upon the Word of God. Secondly, critics attack the Bible as being highly inaccurate. Now, I don't know if there are any of them left, but you know I had the five pamphlets out there on how we can know the Scripture is true, the reliability of the Word of God. If there aren't any left, you can get them. I'm glad to send some more for the assembly here, but often the Bible is attacked by critics because they say it is highly inaccurate, contains all sorts of inaccuracies and contradictions, and it never ceases to, to amaze me that oftentimes the people that say that have never even read the book. <laughs> How can you sit in criticism on a book you've never read or given yourself to any study of the things that support the fact that this book is not inaccurate or filled with contradictions. But be that as it may, that is often an attack you will hear. But interestingly enough, they don't attack Daniel chapter 11 because of inaccuracies. They attack Daniel chapter 11 because it is too accurate. So they can't have it both ways, can they? They'd like to. What do I mean by that? Well, if you find any of the helpful commentaries on Daniel, and if you like the big heavy artillery, it isn't overly heavy artillery in the sense of it's very readable, but it's a very stout volume by current living man, John Lennox, professor of, former professor at Oxford of mathematics, but a fine Bible teacher. And I've had the privilege of being in a few studies with him over the years. And, uh, it's always amazed me that this man who's on first-name basis with several Nobel Prize winners 
I was impressed by the fact that before the Iron Curtain, before the wall came down, he used to get in his little Volkswagen and travel to those communist bloc countries to preach the gospel among those places in Czechoslovakia and other places around the world. But anyway, his book, Against the uh, Flow, uh, Daniel, a great commentary if you're interested in the heavy-duty one. There are others as well, but I say that to say you'll find that what will happen in chapter 11 is if you were to just go over the, the sheer raw history of what happened with those Seleucid kings and the Ptolemies, that is Egypt and North Syria, Macedonia, and all of those kings... Just look at the pure history of it and lay it side by side, which is what some of the commentaries do, of Daniel chapter 11. Well, you'll see why those who don't believe in predictive prophecy or in uh, it, that it could possibly be this accurate because it matches perfectly. How the kings came about and rose up and the battles they fought, it may be expressed in somewhat symbolic language, but not so much as it is in other places. Now, basically, there are four movements that take place in chapter 4. And so, beginning in verse 5, you have Antiochus III. I'm just going to give you the basic summary. And his uh, exploits and the battles that went back and forth, as I said before, often taking place in what's sometimes called the Pleasant Land because of where it was geographically, uh, militarily having to get from point A to point B and coming through the land of, of Judea and so on. And then you find the character we've met before prophetically in this book, and that is Antiochus IV, who came to be known as Antiochus Epiphanes, who took upon himself a divine title of being manifest as God, God manifest. And you begin to see something about his exploits, beginning in chapter 11, verse 20, down to verse 28. And then at verse 29, we continue with Antiochus one more time. And you find now what happened when uh, his invasion of Egypt was unsuccessful. All of this is historically documented, by the way. But... When his invasion of Egypt was unsuccessful, unsuccessful, and he turned, as it says in verse 30, and had indignation against the Holy Covenant, and so on. You read once more of his frustration that was taken out on Palestine. We talked a little bit about that yesterday, flowing out of chapter 7 and 8. And you see that he, in verse 31, would pollute the sanctuary take away the daily sacrifice, and place the abomination that makes desolate, which we've already referred to, the Lord himself referred to in Matthew 24. I think it's found at least three times here in the book of Daniel in one form of mention or another. He would do wickedly against the covenant and, and so on. And then, Perhaps the Maccabees are indicated here, the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits, and, and so on and so on. Now, throughout this chapter 11, one of the things that you'll find is this expression that is repeated um, at verse 6, the end of the years, verse 27, at the time appointed, verse 29, the time appointed, verse 35, the time of the end, 
and so on and so on. We finally come in chapter 36 to a king who will do according to his will, exalt himself, magnify himself above every god, speak marvelous things against the God of gods, and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished, for that that is determined shall be done. He will not regard the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall magnify himself above all. You may think it an interpretive leap that I'm going to take now, but this last king cast us forward again to think about that one who ultimately is coming. He's been mentioned before, the little horn we've seen in other passages, and so on. But we know this is not now Antiochus. But that Antiochus, Epiphanes, and those before him, and so on, although Antiochus was the first one to actually attack the Jewish religion and pollute the synagogue and cause that term to be identified as that abomination that makes desolate, he was but a prototype. He was a real person, but a prototype of someone who's going to come in the future who's even worse. And one of the reasons we know that even from this passage is, you'll notice what's said of him in verse 37. He will not regard any god. Now that was not Antiochus. You may remember yesterday that I mentioned that Antiochus sought to Hellenize the Jews, to incorporate Greek culture and religion to make everybody of one religion. It wasn't that he didn't regard any god. He would have regarded the god of Zeus or Jupiter. I get my Roman gods and Greek gods mixed up from time to time. I don't know if you have that problem. but Anyway, um, Antiochus was not one who did not regard any god. So now we're cast forth to think of somebody else. And so one of the things we have to come to the conclusion of or determine in the book of Daniel is there are these different times when it looks like the end, and then another time when it looks like the end, and surely this is the end, but it's not the end. And finally you come to a time that will be the end. See, it will take place that will indicate the end. And I'm going to suggest to you that that is what you have beginning in verse 36 and down through uh, the rest of chapter 11. Now, in that sense, chapter 11 is an expansion of chapter 8, but in much greater detail. And unless I'm incorrect, this is the only part of the Word of God that covers what is referred to as that intertestamental period or as sometimes called the silent years, the roughly 400 years from the closing of the Old Testament canon with Malachi, who prophesied the one who would come in the spirit of Elijah, and then the first voice that breaks the silent years is the one who came in the spirit of Elijah, who was John the baptizer, that breaks the silent years. But during that intertestamental period, during that roughly 400 years, which, by the way, if you remember, 
from the issuing of the decree under Artaxerxes around 442 B.C. or sometime around there, this 400 years corresponds very much with a number of those years that were prophesied in Daniel chapter 9 of the 483 years we looked at. Now, I'm not expecting you to want to remember all those numbers except to say that we find now Daniel being given advanced revelation about what was going to occur during that time, during that historical time, but also about something that we've already been clued into that was going to take place much later at a different time. So in one point, to let his people know, as we have to know, there are times that look like the end. And surely his people thought when Antiochus came in and desecrated the temple and the abomination and desolation, this must be it. But it wasn't it. We have to be careful, don't we? I remember, uh, it's funny, I was told you I was just in Nashville here week or so ago, and I, some of our close friends that lived there, and back in uh, 1988, they called me. And they called me to say, we want to get your take. There's people here in Nashville that are having rapture parties. Now, they were having rapture parties because a certain engineer against engineers. There may be engineers here, so there's nothing against engineers, but this man was an engineer. And he wrote a book called 88 Reasons. 88 Reasons Why Jesus Christ Must Come Back in 1988. And it was a very popular book in that he had it widely distributed all over the place, you see. And he had all of his reasons and did the math, the calculations. His basic thesis was Israel became a nation in 1948. This generation shall not pass until 40 years is a generation. Do the math. 40 plus 48, 88. The Lord must come back in September of 1988 during Rosh Hashanah, you know, so on and so on. And the Lord didn't come back in 1988. Interestingly enough, I have a good friend who's an elder in a certain local assembly who got saved reading that book. <laughs> He got saved because he thought, well, the Lord's coming back, which is true. And I'm not saved, and I better get saved. To which, I'm not suggesting that you write a book of false prophecy to try to get people saved. Simply to say, if I'm often reminded myself, it's a big help to me that if God can speak through Balaam's ass, well, he can speak through somebody like me. You know, there's hope. <laughs> he can communicate his word. Then maybe you remember a man named Harold Camping. Twice. He wrote a big, thick volume. 1992 was on the Oprah show. Why the Lord's coming in 1992. That didn't work out so well. Years later, in, was it 2005 or something? I forget now exactly. Same man. Big billboards all over the United States. Why the Lord was coming in May of that particular year. I lose the date now to think about it. Very important, you see, to know that things can look like the end, but they may not be the end. 
very important for Daniel's people to understand that. And so he's communicated to him a great volume of truth to help him distinguish that this is going to look like the end, but it's not. This is going to look like the end, but it's not. But there will come an end. And so we have read about this one. I won't take the time to repeat it today, but you should be aware of those passages in 2 Thessalonians uh, in chapter 2 and of Revelation chapter 13 of those things that, as we said yesterday, harmonize together to show who this last king is in those end times. This one that will magnify himself above every god and shall speak blasphemous blasphemous things against the god of gods, will sit in the temple and demand to be worshipped as God himself. And according to Revelation 13, will cause all who do not receive the mark in their hand or their forehead to be slain, and no man will be able to buy or sell unless they have that mark. Now I go out not so much on a limb, but I do stick my theological neck out, uh, and I don't mind doing so. I'm old enough now. I don't want to say it doesn't matter. It always matters, doesn't it? You want to be accurate, but you know what I mean. (laughs) Uh, I believe that before all of that occurs, that the Lord Jesus is coming back to receive us unto himself that he is going to take us out of this world to be with him before that closing seven-year period of tribulation occurs on this planet. And I believe that not because of what some guy taught in a book long ago. I believe it because I believe it's what the Word of God teaches when accurately divided. That according to 1 Thessalonians, God has not appointed us to wrath the wrath to come, chapter 1. That's a specific thing, not just wrath in general. I hasten to say that because I believe that the Lord is going to take believers out of the world before that time of tribulation comes upon this earth, it does not mean that you and I as believers are exempt from tribulation, persecution, hostility, and perhaps even martyrdom or death before that occurs. I think that's a great misunderstanding. We don't know when the Lord is coming back. And things may intensify and get much worse before that happens. We ought to be ready as believers because, again, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. That was the legal ground. And the word of their testimony, that was their faith expressed. But they loved not their lives unto death. They were willing if cost, if it be, to give up their life, if that's what it took, to stand for the truth of God. And so it's a rather extended portion, if you will, but uh, nevertheless, I, I hope I've done it somewhat justice to think a little bit about why Daniel is told what he is, particularly about chapter 11. And so we notice again the parallels, particularly in the, in the section that we're in, chapter 5, the writing on the wall, the destruction of Belshazzar, and then in chapter 10, the writing of truth and the eventual destruction of that king that is mentioned of whom I've just been speaking in chapter 11. Let's see what this one is. 
not that one. These things are like this small in here, so I'm like, mm, what are they, you know? Ah, this one. No. <laughs> we'll get it. It's here somewhere. Oh, let's go to this one. This one. I knew it was there. So in chapter 5, again, the section that parallels, uh, this king, Belshazzar, recognized the gods of wood and stone, while this king recognizes no god. They both were willful kings. They both had a disregard for God. In this section, there was writing as well. It was the writing on the wall. But in this section, the writing of truth. In this section, it led to the end of Babylon, the reign of Belshazzar. This section, the apparent ends ultimately lead to the end. Now listen, this is not about doing gymnastics with the Word of God or trying to make stuff up. You may not agree with this approach at all, which is fine. You have your own approach. That's, that's all well and good. But one of the things that always impresses me is when you just begin to, for instance, just record things here. In other words, I didn't just stick these in here. These are actual things that you observe from the text. When you observe them from the text and you see how this is put together, it always impresses me that the Word of God is not just an ancient book, it is a sophisticated book. And by sophisticated, I don't mean it's beyond the grasp of the believer to understand. I mean that the way that it is actually put together is sophisticated. It is not just thrown together with the writer saying, I need some filler. What can I do in here? That it is actually placed together in such a way to amplify the truth and to help us get a hold of what is the message that the Spirit of God is communicating through that book. At least that's always been a thing that's helped me and has impressed me as I study the Scripture. Now you can't help but notice, I know this is very small in, in the font size and all, but in case you're wondering, this is the vision that Daniel had, the first vision of a certain man. And I'm sure that your mind may have already fast-forwarded to the New Testament to think of that vision that John had in the book of Revelation. And at the least, you've got to say there's a remarkable correspondence, isn't there? This one here, a certain man clothed in linen. This one clothed with a garment down to the foot. Body like barrel, that stone. Loins girded with gold, gold here. Eyes as lamps of fire. His feet like polished brass. His voice, the voice of a multitude. His voice is the sound of many waters. His appearance of lightning. His countenance is the sun shining in his, in his strength. And the response of both is that when he saw this great vision, how it troubled him and he lost his strength and so on. And the same sort of response with John who fell at his feet as dead. To me, it's a clear indication that the one that Daniel saw is the same one that John saw, who was none other than the very Son of God himself, which is an amazing thing to think. And of course, it ties right back in with what Daniel saw and what was beginning to take place, pointing ultimately to what John is going to see as the judgment of God begins to be unleashed upon this planet. So having uh, looked at that a bit, we go back now 
to chapter 10. In the four and twentieth day, verse four of the first month, I was by the side of the great river, which is Hiddekel, the Tigris. And I'm not going to get too speculative here except to say that at this point in this stage in this book, Daniel was an old man. And I don't mean this to try to be cute or quaint or anything like that except to say as Daniel looked at that river flowing, been a lot of water flowed under the bridge in Daniel's life, hadn't it? A man who'd lived through different governmental administrations. A man who saw empires, great empires of ancient history, rise and fall. A man who had had tremendous truth revealed to him as he stood and looked at that river. And as I mentioned before, this is the river where it all began. You go back to the book of Genesis and you see the land of the Tigris and the Euphrates. It's the very thing that flowed out of the garden where it all began, where man was created in the sense of history that had to be connected with it. The place where Abram was called to go out to a land of which he had not seen yet and to be a pilgrim and a stranger on the planet looking for that city that had foundations whose builder and maker was God. And the poignancy of the fact that here he was in Babylon, by that river, the place of the beginning, being told about the time of the end, where it all began. And one day, if you read Revelation 17 and 18 about Babylon there, where it's all going to end, where all the glory of man, like Babylon will come to an end in one hour, the Scripture says. All that man has put his stock in, when I say man, human beings, and all they put their hope in, commerce, government, man's religion. Because remember, when the term Babel got its start, it got its start from a group of people who sought to form their own world, a world without God, a world in opposition to God. God said, go scatter. They said, we'll gather here. We'll make us a, na a great name. We'll make us a tower that heights reach to the heavens. Listen, if you're an architect, you don't want to build some little one-bedroom flat, do you? <laughs> You want to build something like they have in Kuala Lumpur or, or Dubai, let's see. Massive structures. And God said, let's go down and have a look. He divided the people up. You know, there's different interpretations about that build a tower up to the heavens. And it's just an interpretive thing, but some think it was it's hyperbole, you know, build the biggest place we can as far as we're not going to really climb into the heavens. But there's another sense, and it's borne out some by archaeology, that is, let's build a tower, and around its heights will be these astrological signs of the heavens. 
because they were not worshiping the one and true living God. And it's an amazing thing when we think of the history of it, isn't it? There when God scattered those people who said, we're going to make us a name. They were united linguistically. They all spoke the same language. They were united ideologically. They were all there for the same purpose. They were united geographically, all in the same place. They were united religiously in opposition to God. God said, as he scattered them, Listen, if you haven't been reading Genesis 10 and 11 recently, you know what comes after Genesis 10 and 11? Genesis 12. (laughs) (laughs) It's the call of Abram, isn't it? What was it Abram was told, among other things, that when God called him? I will make your name great. See, at Babel, they said, we'll make us a great name independent of God. God calls that man, Abram says, I'll make your name great. And now we come back to the book of Daniel. There was something there about names, wasn't there? As you remember in the very beginning, I started off referring to those Hebrew men as Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Because that was their Hebrew names. But they gave them other names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and all of those names, Meshach, for instance, not Mishael, who was like unto the Lord in that sense, who was like the moon god, a society and a world and a government that sought to give these people significance apart from the true and the living God, which was indicated by the names they were given. Now, I don't want to jumble things up too much except to say that following that passage in Revelation chapter 13, where the edict goes forth that no one can buy or sell without the mark of the beast in their hand or in their forehead, John turns and sees 144,000 who were redeemed. They didn't have the mark of the beast. They had their father's name in their foreheads. And you and I as believers have to come to grips with the fact, where does our significance come from? Does it come from what the world attaches to us? Or does it come from our identity in Christ? Even as we were thinking this morning about the adoption of sons. That's where our real significance lies, doesn't it? Now, we may do things in the world that give us a degree of importance and all that. I understand. But our real significance comes from the name that he gives us. And that name that is above every name with which you and I who are believers are identified with. That'll carry you all the way through to glory. See, wonderful thing to think about. So that's what we come to in this particular book of Daniel. Now, looking at chapter 10, um, we want to just move forward just a touch to chapter 12 and read there, beginning at verse 1, and then sort of tie things back together. At that time shall Michael stand up, and the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people. And now, you see, listen to what he's told now. There will be such a time of trouble such as never was seen since there was a nation, even to that same time. 
And at that time, thy people should be delivered, everyone that should be found written in the book. And remember, the Lord himself said, future is coming a time of tribulation such as this world has never seen. Worse than any pandemic that's ever been around. Worse than all the hostilities and atrocities that have committed, been committed against human beings throughout all the ages. There's coming a time like that. And so, Daniel, I've, you've been shown this terrible period of what's going to happen to your people and other historical things going to happen to your people. But, Daniel, there's coming a time. And when that time comes, well, then your people will be delivered. Hope for the future. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament. They that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. And then verse 5, Daniel looked and beheld, there stood other two, one on this side of the bank of the river, the other on that side of the bank of the river. And one said to the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, how long shall it be to the end of these wonders? I should have done it, I didn't. Maybe you'll do it. Go through the book of Daniel and see how many times you find that term, the end. I guarantee it's repeated a lot. That was the big question. Well, it really is a big question, isn't it? When the end will come. And I heard the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand, his left hand unto heaven, swear by him that liveth forever and ever, that it shall be for times, a time, times and a half. Three and a half. And when he shall have accomplished to scatter the power of, thy, of the holy people, all these things shall be finished. And I heard, but I understood not. And then said I, O oh my Lord, what shall be the end of all these things? And he said, Go thy way, Daniel. For the words are closed up and sealed to the time of the end. And then finally he says, in verse 13, Go thy way till the end be, for thou shalt rest and stand in thy lot at the end of the days. So let's begin to think about tying these threads together a bit, if we might. Daniel lived in a world and in a society where everything pretty much around him was based on that which was false. A false view of the cosmos, a false view of the true and living God, and on and on it went. How to be sustained by the truth when so much around you is false. Now to you young people, Daniel was exposed to that type of thing during his three years of Babylonian university education. Three years, remember, they were to groom those young men in the school, in the university of the Babylonians. And he purposed in his heart, and he didn't violate it. Many a young person has found themselves in university and not stood on the things that they once held and believed when those truths were attacked and assaulted, and they were marginalized because of the things that they once held to be true. 
You got to be like Daniel, purpose in your heart ahead of time, don't you? When so much around is false, when God's people themselves were in decline, it's one thing to stand for the truth when God's people are doing well. Wasn't the case in Daniel's day, was it? They'd been carried off into captivity because of their disobedience. God gave them over to that. Read about that in the first chapter. There are a number of things that begin to shine out through this book of Daniel. Number one, there is a higher authority. And Daniel and his friends recognized there was a higher authority than the king on earth. Authority in heaven. And to that authority they would bow. And that authority would rule their lives. No other. They had a higher loyalty when they recognized that higher authority. They had a future hope. A hope that even though trouble was certain to come, God is a realist, isn't he? He doesn't say to stick your head in the sand as a Christian and go around a la-di-da. Life's always going to be wonderful and good and you're exempt from pain and suffering and tribulation. No. He warns us. The Lord Jesus warns, warned us. Trouble to come, but a future hope. So I'm going to give you six things now that I, I suggest sustain Daniel and you can draw the application of how these things can sustain you as well and me during whatever we face. First of all, there were the writings. In one sense, the writings of Jeremiah that he studied. And also, what we find here in 11.2, and what we found at the end of chapter 10, the scripture of truth. I will show thee the truth, 11.2. There was a truth that Daniel was able to get hold of that sustained him. God's revealed truth. And it will sustain you as a believer. Get hold of God's revealed truth and let it get hold of you. And it will sustain you. Secondly, there was that man. And when we read in our translations, there was a man in chapter 10 that he saw, a certain man who how he was closed, clothed rather. And he stood above the river eventually. The river of time, river of history could flow on, but there's one who is above that river of time. He is called in the book of Daniel, isn't he? The ancient of days, from everlasting to everlasting. To be... To, to, to have the vision of that man, to have Christ brought before us. I tell you, that's a sustaining thing. We need to have that. And when I say vision, I'm not talking about a dream like Daniel had. I'm talking to have Christ brought before our hearts and our minds through the Scripture and through thinking of Him and remembering Him collectively, even as we did this morning. That's the second thing. The third thing is, Daniel was told, many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Daniel, there's going to be a resurrection. Though the trouble comes, though, Daniel, you see death, and many of your people see death, 
there's coming a time of resurrection. Do you believe that? I tell you, if you don't believe that, you might as well go home and do something else. You don't believe in the resurrection. Because Paul himself will say it this way, if Christ be not raised from the dead, we're of all men most miserable. It's all a big soap bubble. It's all a fraud and a fake. But Christ is risen from the dead. Amen and amen. And because of that, you and I who are believers have the hope of the resurrection that this life is not all there is. Wonderful hope. The fourth thing I would say that sustained Daniel is that one of the most apparent things throughout this book is that God has a plan and a program, doesn't he? He does have a timetable he's working on. While Daniel wasn't told all of the timing of the details of the very end, we can see the intricacy of God's plan. That, that verse that rings out from the very early chapters of the book of Daniel, that the Most High sets up the kingdoms on earth, puts in place whom he will, and so on. In other words, above the governments and the politics and the affairs of this world, God has a plan. And it may seem chaotic to us at times, but he's working that plan out to his perfection. The fifth thing is what Daniel is told at the end. Go thy way till the end be, for thou shalt rest. And Daniel, you will stand in your lot at the latter days. Now, time doesn't allow me to go into detail except to say, read Psalm 16, parts of it. And remember that whatever Daniel's lot was, it wasn't in Babylon, was it? That wasn't the inheritance that God had promised him. The lot stood in Israel not only for the physical piece of land, but as you'll see, David transposing that into a higher key in Psalm 16. It stood for everything that God had been to him and given to him. David could say, Thou maintainest my lot. The lines have fallen unto me in pleasant places. You are the portion of mine inheritance. Daniel, one day, you'll come into that inheritance that God has promised you. It's real, Daniel. You may not see it now in your lifetime, Daniel, but one day you will. We have a great inheritance, don't we, as believers in Christ? And the last thing is something mentioned here twice in chapter 10. It's mentioned in verse 11, and it's mentioned in verse 19. When heaven says to Daniel, O Daniel, a man greatly beloved, and in verse 19, O man greatly beloved. With that in mind, I, I'll close by turning to Romans chapter 8, just to remind our hearts one more time. Romans chapter 8, another fascinating chapter of the Word of God because of the progress, if I could call it that, that you see in, in Romans chapter 8. 
And in Romans chapter 8, once again we find in verse 18, sufferings. We find the creation itself groaning to be delivered. We find uh, those things towards the end of the chapter, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, sheep for the slaughter. What sustains us? Oh, Daniel, man, greatly beloved. You see, we can put up with a whole lot if we know, according to verse 31, if God be for us, who can be against us? I'll tell you, that'll help you through life because sometimes when you go through the hardships and the difficulties and the heartaches and the tragedies, you won't be the first one to cry out, why? You won't be the first one to wonder, how can this happen to me if God is for me? But you know that God is for you. How do you know? Verse 32 will tell you. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? The great evidence that God is for you is he delivered up his own son. And if heaven could speak to Daniel and under that Old Covenant time, an Old Testament time, and say from heaven, Daniel, you are a man greatly beloved. Well, how much clearer that voice rings to us today in light of Calvary and the Son of God who died there and gave himself for us. God is for us. No matter what we experience in this life, Nothing will lessen that truth that God is for us and he gave his son as the great evidence of that, among other things. So may the Lord help us as we've considered some of these things from the book of Daniel. How should we close? Our Father, we thank you for Calvary. We thank you, though, not just for the place, we thank you for the person. We think of those words of Paul as he wrote to the Galatians. And he could say to them, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Paul called himself in another place a persecutor of the church did great injury to the church, sought to wipe the name of Jesus out from that area of Judea and Palestine as it's known, and yet came to the living reality on that Damascus road, I am Jesus whom you persecuted. And he became a pattern of mercy and of long-suffering, Lord, if you could save Saul, then there's hope for us. And he became a chief proponent of the very gospel that he once 
persecuted and the very person that he sought to stamp out that name. What a wonder of grace. And every one of us that are saved, we're a trophy of grace. One day we're told in Ephesians that we will be displayed as trophies of grace because every one of us has been won at the same cost. Not a one of us had more paid for us than the other. It took the death of the Son of God for every one of our salvation. Father, if there's any that are listening and they're not saved, pray that today might be the day. They come to the Lord Jesus, believe on Him, pass from death unto life. And all these wonderful things that are so true, they'll begin to realize in their own experience. So we give you thanks again for this time of conference. We pray for this assembly. We pray as they seek to navigate the challenging waters of the times in which we find ourselves living. Give them help. Give them wisdom. Lead, guide, and may they be sensitive to it, we pray. We give you thanks again for your goodness to us. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen.